Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles Chuck Bryan over there looking all stern and serious with his glasses on. Oh, no, he took them off. <laughs> He's all good. And then there's Jerry over there. He's not sure where she is. Jerry always has her glasses on. I know. She looks weird with her glasses off. She is a four eyes. <laughs> that's what they call them in sixth grade. That's right. Well, that's what they used to. I don't know. Sixth graders are probably way more mature than they, they were when we were young, huh? Or way more advanced in their digs and insults. Right. You know? Yeah. Just a lot smarter than four eyes. Right. Like, your mom gives you no screen time each week. <laughs> Chew on that. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> sure. Right. So, um, Chuck... I'm glad we're here. In the hot box. This was a really good pick on your part. Thanks. You basically yanked an unsung, or probably sung now, but for many years, unsung Mm -hmm. hero of um, the trans community. Yeah, give all the credit to me. (laughs) You really did a great (laughs) job here, Chuck. No, you did a good job finding this one, because I hadn't heard of uh, Michael Dillon yet, but that's who we're talking about today. That's right. Uh, And it's just the most macro view, uh, so you know what we're talking about, is uh, Michael Dillon, very much overlooked over the years as a trailblazer in the trans community, period. Yeah. That's that's enough of an overview. Oh, okay, sure. Like one of the first people to undergo surgery, one of the first people to, like, write about it and write books. Yeah, but not not necessarily even just one of. They believe that Michael Dillon was the first female to male— um, gender confirmation surgery ever. Yeah, and, you know, there are different terms in this article, we should say. They call that gender confirmation uh, surgery now. They used to call it sexual reassignment. Before um, that, it was sex change. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the pronouns in this are going to shift, too, because I think we're just going to follow the timeline of the story pronoun-wise, Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't that kind of makes sense? Yeah, because for a significant portion, well, the first several years, no, I'm trying to think, I don't know how old he was, but he, uh, he spent like a, a lot of his formative life as a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, the, the waters are a bit muddied, but they were kind of purposefully muddied historically. Um, and it's not entirely clear whether Michael Dillon, born Laura Dillon, Laura Maud Dillon, um, whether Laura Maud Dillon was born intersex um, or if that was just kind of draped over the public um, presentation of this gender confirmation journey um, in order to kind of gain public sympathy, which is yeah. something you had to do back then for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the waters were very, throughout history and still are very much muddied. Um, I mean, you can go back and look at examples in history of people that we don't know because the world wasn't set up for recognition or acceptance of any kind of alternative uh, lifestyle or anything on the gender spectrum. And so we don't know about Joan of Arc or we don't know for sure about uh, Emperor, what is his name? Elagabalus. Like he he tried to get, well, I guess I don't even know what they would have called that surgery back then right. <laughs> in like Roman times. Uh-huh. Who knows? 
Uh, but he tried to have the surgery way back then even. Oh, I didn't find anything like that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, which, but we just don't know, like you said, because history didn't acknowledge this kind of thing. So it's hard to sort of uh, categorize it today. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, it actually wasn't until about the early 20th century, mm-hmm. like the first fifth of the 20th century, that the medical establishment, just tiny little pieces and, and dots here or there of the mm-hmm. medical establishment, especially in the kind of newly burgeoning um, discipline of plastic surgery, yeah, began to see like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There are people out there who feel like that they were born the wrong gender, mm-hmm. like their, their, their sense of self, their identity, uh, of their gender doesn't match their biology, and we can do something about that. Uh, and at first, it was extremely radical. For yeah, the first yeah. several decades, um, it was extremely radical. I mean, now even, it's, it's definitely gained much more acceptance, this idea that sure. some people are born, um, they identify with a different gender than what they were born with. Um, that at the at the in the like 1920s it was very very radical but it did exist in in some parts of the medical community yeah and i also get the feeling that plastic surgeons especially like a some of them were probably out to like assist people but i think a lot of them were just like it was such a new discipline period they were they liked the challenge they were like nip tucking it <laughs> you remember those renegades on that show? I forgot about that show. It was a good show at first. Yeah, but I got the—I f- never saw it. Oh, it was a good show at first. Yeah. It it went off the rails, maybe even more than Dexter did. But <laughs> oh, it, boy. it it was a good show at first for the first several seasons. Uh, no, but I get the feeling that plastic surgeons back then were just like, oh, well, this like is probably the ultimate challenge. Right. Yeah, yeah. I have the, I have that feeling too for sure. So this is uh, just a means of setting up the world that um, Laura Maud Dillon found herself born into in Ireland in 1915 as a, uh, and I'd never heard this term, but his family um, had a title of baronet, okay, which is apparently the lowest hereditary titled order. It's a teeny baron. So you're a, you're a commoner, but you are required to be called sir. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, and even if it wasn't like kind of the teensy version of the Baron, the um, the Dillons were not like wealthy. They had an estate, but it was kind of an old kind of crumbling estate. Yeah, they weren't poor or anything, but they were certainly not well off. Right. And then by Downton Abbey times, the mm. Sinn Féin came along and burned the place to the ground, the estate to the ground, because it was kind of a, a reminder of uh, English intrusion into Ireland. Yeah. Like, you know, landed gentry kind of thing. Um, I'm rewatching Downton Abbey, by the way. Are you? Yeah. Uh, how is it? It's comfort food, which is what I need right now, so that's why we're watching it. Is it better the first time or the second time around? Well, the fir- uh, I don't know. Right now, it's just like kind of what the doctor ordered, so it's kind of great. Okay. Just like all my old pals, plus the movie's coming out this fall. That's so neat. So maybe this is a primer. I don't know. What? M- they're, they're making a movie? <laughs> yeah. Is, has there? Let me ask you this. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> has there ever been a movie version of a TV show that was better than the TV show? Uh, I'll have to get back to you on okay. that. Okay, I can't think of one. A movie version of a TV show. I one. cannot think of one. I think the Fresh Prince movie was pretty great. <laughs> they they did. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, I, we have to stop for two hours. It was called Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I guess it kind of was. Uh, all right, so um, Laura Maud Dillon um, 
the family, like you said, the state was burned down. He had gotten, or I guess she, see, there we go. Um, at the time, she had gotten a um, an inheritance, a little bit, not a ton. Yeah, because she was young when she would have gotten this inheritance. Yeah, but uh, her brother got uh, the actual, you know, estate, which, as it turned out, wasn't that great of a get so because he be- it was burned down. He, Robert, her brother, mm-hmm. became the eighth baronet of Lismullen. And I guess when he was handed the title, he was like, thanks, Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but uh, young Laura knew very early on that she was different. Um, she, especially when she got to puberty, um, she didn't like wearing girls' clothing. She never thought of herself as a female. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, that comes through in everything I've read about her oh, yeah. or him that – he never thought of he never identified as yeah. female like basically his entire life yeah and apparently there was even a uh, incident when she was a teenager where like a boy held open the door for her and that just sort of it was a symbol i think of all the confusion that she was feeling and uh, really kind of wrecked her identity you know in a lot of ways yeah i think it was the first time she was really confronted with what people saw her as and right. it was a girl and she was like I don't feel like a girl that's not me I'm I'm a man yeah um that's a that's I I didn't grow up that way but I I can't imagine how rough it is to to feel out of sync like that and especially at a time where sure what do you do you don't even have words for it let alone procedures to follow or people whose footsteps who pioneered the way which is one reason why Michael Dillon was a pioneer. So uh, she gets that uh, inheritance, which allows her to go to Oxford. And this sort of begins uh, a trend of going somewhere else to try and find herself and figure herself out. Yeah. Uh, she tried at Oxford. She joined the rowing team. Um, she was an award winner for the Women's Boat Club and was successful. And then, and it's hard, well, it's, I guess it's not too hard to believe, but uh, there was a photo of her in a tabloid as a student rower mm-hmm. that was titled Man or Woman. Yeah, because she had like a boyish haircut. Yeah. I just can't imagine back then like yeah, – I mean now it's awful too, but they were doing this kind of thing back then? Yeah. Like outing college students? Yeah, I think it was more like um, the commoners poking at the um, the titled people. Oh, really? Any chance they got. Oh, okay. That's the impression I have. Correct me if I'm wrong, Great Britain – Uh, And this is about the time where we should mention a novel uh, published in 1928 by Marguerite Radcliffe Hall Mm. called The Well of Loneliness, which was a radical, radical book because it depicted a lesbian. And there wasn't even a name for that at the time, like you said. Yeah, I looked that up and I was like, like, there really wasn't like the word lesbian wasn't in use yet. And there was no word whatsoever. And from what I saw on Etymology Online, it just says, <laughs> with zero explanation, lesbian, 1925. Oh, really? Yeah, but I can't find any other thing. I find no other date or whatever. So it's possible it, it was in use right around this time, but, but it hadn't spread. spread. Yeah. But from what I saw, I think, I think the point is there wasn't a concept. Right. Not just a word. There wasn't a concept for women who were interested in 
or who were who were sexually oriented toward other women. Yeah, that was that kind of fell under an umbrella term as far as society went for women who were sexually uninhibited. Mm-hmm. Like they would do that, but then they would also have sex with guys, and they would like walk around parties naked or whatever. It was that kind? Like it all? It was all one big personality. There wasn't like right. the idea that there were there was a sexual orientation of women who were oriented toward women. That just that it was, I think, what really didn't exist, and that what the the well of loneliness really kind of put out there, like, hey, this does exist, and um, you could say that it wasn't well received by British society. Yeah, and it was. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a great thing because it gave people uh, like uh, young Laura the, you know, something to look at and identify with. But it also put forward ideas about um, lesbians being very mannish and like they want to be men and look like men and dress like men, mm-hmm. which is, of course, not the case. But it was also 1928. Right. And so the, the, uh, British, the British government decided that this book was obscene and had a huge trial over it yeah. and banned the book. And it had a complete Streisand effect. Everybody's like, wait, what book is this? What, is, what are you talking about? And now everybody Barbara wanted Streisand? to know about it. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so everybody wanted to know about it, and it like made this huge impact. It just totally backfired by banning it and going to the trouble of, of taking it to trial and everything. It became kind of a big deal. And so it kind of informed um, how a lot of British lesbians viewed themselves it gave them like okay i'm not the only one this is a real thing yeah it was a it was a it was helpful in a lot of ways too well i mean one way it was helpful to young laura dillon was realizing well wait a minute i'm not a lesbian right either so uh there i have no idea how to think about myself other than the fact that i was born into the wrong gendered body right because at first she was like, oh, okay, maybe this is it. And the, uh, supposedly she fell in love as a teenager, so uh, air quotes, mm-hmm. um, with two women who were straight and they rejected her and it had a, a big impact on her. But from that experience and I think having been guided by this book, like you said, she realized like, I'm not a lesbian. That's not that's not what this is about. Right. She was a man and what superseded all other desires and what drove her more than anything else was to be the man that she felt she was right. physically mm-hmm. so that she could be accepted into male society. That was her goal. It wasn't to have sex with women. Uh, if she could have had a kid with a woman, she would have loved that. But in as much as it would confirm her identity as a man. And so that's what drove her to undertake um, hormone procedures, surgery, and basically everything that that pushed her toward confirming her identity as a man. It was the desire to be accepted as a man. Yeah, and and that process kind of started at Oxford uh, when she started dressing as a man, uh, kind of presenting outwardly as a man, going to events as a man. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a double-edged sword. There was a little bit of freedom to that. and a little bit of, you know, work towards self-realization. But, um, you know, she graduated as a woman, still had a female name on her birth certificate, still still had to, you know, got a job and had to wear skirts and dress as a woman at work. Right. So it was sort of just still trapped between two worlds uh, when she comes in contact with a man named Dr. George Foss. I think we should take a break. I agree. Okay. <laughs> I read your mind. 
All right, Chuck, you were setting everybody up for the Dr. Foss bomb drop. <laughs> Let's hear about Foss. It's not a bad band name. The Dr. Foss bomb drop? <laughs> it's, a, it's like a Dr. <laughs> Teeth in the electric what? Uh, electric Mayhem? That's right. Isn't that right? Nice work. I so, would never have thought of that. <laughs> Foss was, uh, speaking of double-edged swords, he was a doctor who was experimenting with testosterone on patients. Like one of the first. Yeah, and uh, injections. Then uh, this was in like the 1930s, and what uh, this was to help uh, reduce unpleasant heavy periods for mm-hmm. women. But it had the side effect, the obvious side effects that would happen when a woman takes testosterone. Mm-hmm. And Laura Dillon gets word of this and volunteers and says, "I'm kind of interested in the side effects, right? If you know what I mean." Right. He's like, "I don't know what you mean." Yeah. He says, "This is 1930. I have no idea what you're talking about." Right. So he's like, "Ah, oh, okay. All right. Well, you would be the absolute first, as far as anybody knows, since synthetic hormones were very, very new." Yeah. Um, Laura Dillon was the first to try to undergo hormone therapy um, for gender confirmation. No one had ever tried that before. They didn't even call it hormone therapy. But Foss was like, all right, I'm not quite sure about this. How about, I've heard of people like you. You go see a shrink and talk to a shrink first and then come back afterward and then I'll talk about treating you or whatever. Yeah. And so Laura um, went to a, uh, a, a shrink and they didn't call them shrinks back then either. No, they called them they psycho- had no words for anything. Psychotherapists. <laughs> that guy over there, I yeah. think is what they said. Um, and then came back and said, hey, uh, the shrink said whatever, and how about we do this hormone therapy? Yeah. Foss said, you know what? I've changed my mind, but here's a bottle of testosterone tablets. Good luck. Yeah, I'm just going to leave them on this table and walk out of the room. I was thinking we should <laughs> fully in the sound effect of a, po- oh. a bottle of pills being tossed from one person to another. What does that sound like? <laughs> it's kind of a silent act. A little. Yeah. We, these are really good mics, though. <laughs> so, um, and we should also point out that that's a psychiatrist or psychologist who spoke with Laura, then gossiped about this to other people. Yeah. And that got back to the research facility where Laura worked. So just one of many betrayals in her life. And such a betrayal that, that she said, I'm out of here. She had to actually leave work, this this um, research lab, yeah. because the, the heat had been turned up on her. And yeah, that's a there are a string of betrayals that that popped up throughout his Michael Dillon's life. Um, and and this was one of the first significant ones. But also um, he was also a very lonely person and, and just because of his situation and because yeah. there there was no community for him. And he had some like real friends here or there, but they were kind of random surprising people. Like one of the big influences on his life was the town vicar mm-hmm. from from where he grew up as a girl, really kind of connected and understood him. Yeah. Um and he his family was not very supportive. His brother Robert disowned him at one point. His aunt Toto. Have you ever seen a picture of Aunt Toto? No. If there's ever been a woman named Aunt Toto that looked oh, yeah? like an Aunt Toto, <laughs> it's this lady. Um, she was obviously supportive because in the picture she's walking around with Michael Dillon, full full dress, beard, and everything. Um, but Aunt Toto was supportive. 
she was in as much as she would be out in public pictured with him. Oh, interesting. But I don't have the impression that she was like supportive, supportive. Okay. I think maybe she tolerated it. That's the impression that I have. Or gotcha. probably chided him. Who knows? But um, he he didn't have a lot of friends, but the ones that he did have really helped him in some profound ways. Yeah. Uh, and helped kind of, he did have a, a, a this kind of m- mountain mountain chain of support throughout his life, but never a bunch of people at once. Gotcha. You know what I mean? So mediocre support dabbled here and there throughout his life. I guess so. (laughs) He had to do it on his own, I guess. So this is where, uh, you know, the pronoun definitely shifts at this point because um, Laura fully starts using testosterone, Mm -hmm. fully starts living life as a man. Took on the name Michael. Became Michael, grew a beard. Uh, His voice, you know, because the the hormone treatments worked like his voice dropped and uh, became lower pitched. He got a job as a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he got made fun of there some, but um, it was working well enough to where like customers started to um, he started to kind of pass as a man among people that didn't know who he was. Very much so. As long as he was clothed, he was a man. That's just what he looked like yeah. to everybody. Is like you said, the voice, the beard. Um, the demeanor, he was a very, he was a large man, um, very well built from all those years of rowing. Sure. Um, and then, you know, a decade of testosterone pills or coming, you know, half a decade by this point, um, had really taken effect. Yeah. And this is in Bristol. I don't think we mentioned, uh, another like move to try and start over. Right. Because of that gossipy head shrinker. Right. Uh, who basically got him driven out of his job at the research lab. Right. So, um... He's working at the garage, and he's he's. There is a certain bittersweet um, confirmation or affirmation from mm-hmm. interacting with customers who leave thinking that they just interacted with the man. Right, it's making him feel like himself, the person he's always wanted to be. Um, but like you said, he's getting mocked by coworkers. Um, but one of the things that he he does is he takes on extra work as a fire watcher mm-hmm. because this is during the the Second World War. And um, Britain was getting bombed during the Blitz by the Germans. And Michael Dillon would sit up and watch for fires that broke out and would, you know, call the fire brigade, you know, tell them where to go because a bomb had just set some building on fire, which meant very long hours awake in the dark, sitting around doing nothing. And he took this time to write a book called Self. And Self was a really interesting tome from what I can tell where there was kind of a, a scientific treatise on endocrinology, mm-hmm. psychological treatise on um, basically what would come to later be known as trans identity. Well, and everything, gender identity, homosexuality. Yeah. Like he was kind of tackling it all except not saying like, this is who I am. Right. He was approaching it like, I'm a scientist. Right. And this is, this is what's what. Yeah, and it got published in 1946. It was obviously not some huge bestseller because it was 1946. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it was uh, probably tucked away in certain corners of certain bookstores, but not widely you know, acknowledged and available at the time. Right. Now looked upon as a landmark sure. piece of work, but in 1946. And the, the people who were in this, you know, 
um, scattered trans community at the time yeah. who were lucky enough to find it found a lot of solace in it because it argued on their behalf. At the time, there was a the medical community was like, if you're born intersex, right, where it's unclear what your gender is, mm-hmm. you are you're morally in the clear. Like we can feel bad for you. There's things we can do. Right, we'll, we'll do surgeries. No one's going to really judge you. If you're if you're born biologically one gender, but you want to be the other gender, mm-hmm. you're what everybody considered back then a freak. Like that was the word they tossed around was freak, and you deserve scorn and plenty of it. Whatever anybody wanted to do to you, that's what you deserved at the time. Um, and it was up to the medical community to dole out judgment mm-hmm. of who deserved what. Right. And Michael, in this book self, argued, no, no, it's up to the person to decide. If that person decides that it's their head that they want changed to match their body or their body they want changed to match their head, it's up to them to decide. And this was co- the complete opposite of what the medical community held at the time. Well, yeah, and also the point was, like, there needs to be a physical change. Like, we can't be, quote, unquote, fixed right. psychologically. Yeah. Um, this is real, so we need to be able to physically change our bodies. Right. Um, that, and that was radical at the time. Well, it was, and it was also a time where um, it's important to point out that transitioning from male to female, believe me, nothing was like super accepted, mm-hmm. but that was slightly more accepted in uh, England and, and the West at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were famous cases. Uh, there was one transgender person named Christine Jorgensen. Mm-hmm. Who um, and and ironically too, if you're transitioning male to female, and you transition into this beautiful woman, right? Then uh, it's more accepted and written about as like, well, you know. But look what happened. Like the chrysalis turns into a butterfly, right? Like everybody's like, why can't you be more like Caitlyn Jenner? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. But this is why can't you be more like Christine Jorgensen? Yeah. So the whole point of all that is Michael Dillon. Uh, was sort of in one of the roughest positions to be transitioning the other way, which was not accepted at all um, and the least sort of like understood even. But ironically, at least legally, it was easier for Michael Dillon to undergo an actual surgical transition yeah. going from uh, female to male than it was for somebody who wanted to go male to female, at least in Great Britain, because in the UK at the time, there were laws against um, surgical castration of healthy male genitalia. Right. It was illegal to do. Because, uh, and I don't know if this is confirmed, but one of the thoughts is to get out of the army. Right. They didn't want men having the surgery to get out of the army. But also, at the time, homosexuality was outlawed and had been since 1885. Yeah, that little fact as well. Right. (laughs) Which we've talked about. Yeah. So here we are with Michael Dillon, um, still very much in between worlds, still very much in pain and not living like a full, true life mm-hmm. as his true self. Mm-hmm. But, um, but much happier than, say, uh, during the time when he was working at the research lab. Right. At the very least, the hormones have, like, given him a, a certain amount or confirmed his male identity much more than it had before. That's true. Um, So we should add here that Dylan had diabetes, which turned out to be an interesting sort of um, good thing in some ways because he's at the doctor 
because he has diabetes. He in, really loved his cake. In Bristol. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't tell if it was type 2 or type 1. I never saw that either. So uh, at the hospital in Bristol, um, Dylan is seen by a plastic surgeon who says, wait a minute. Here's a diabetic man, from the doctor's point of view, mm-hmm. who has breasts. And I bet you probably want those removed. So let me put you in touch with this plastic surgeon. His name is Dr. Harold Gillies. I think that guy actually performed a mastectomy first. Oh, really? Yeah. So, uh, well, he he put him in touch with Gillies because, like, this this guy's the real deal. Like, if you want a penis, this is your man. Do you remember? <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's what it said on his card. <laughs> Um, are you – do you remember Gillies from the War Masks episode? Yeah. He was like the hero surgeon from that episode. Yeah. So that – I mean his specialty was um, helping physically repair people who were mangled in a factory mm-hmm. or burned or blasted up at war. Yeah. And he got a reputation. Like I said, if you were in battle – and you lost your penis, go to Dr. Gillies because he can make you a new one. Do you remember that part in Big Red 1 where I think Mark Hamill gets his penis blown off? I do remember that. It's Mark Hamill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that and, was my first R-rated movie. And Lee Marvin, we have had the same conversation we have, before. But years ago. <laughs> yeah. Many years ago. So weird, Chuck. <laughs> anyway, uh, Harold yeah, Gillies could have helped him. Probably could have. Put it back on. So... Uh, all right, so that's where we are. Met Dr. Gillies um, and said, you know what, I can I can make you a penis. It's an interesting procedure. What I do is I cut a flap of skin, mm-hmm. um, allow that skin to grow, and I'm rolling this thing and forming it into a tube shape the whole time. Right. And then effectively uh, I can take that tube of skin and we can talk about what you want out of it. What do you want to do? Uh, you got a tube of skin. It's up to you. Go crazy with whatever you want to do with it. Yeah, but I mean, those are some of the questions. Like, do you want to urinate out of this? Do you oh, want to have sex and have, you know, uh, have sex that actually feels good? Right. And this was, believe it or not, uh, all possible, thanks to Gillies at the time. Yeah. I, I don't think it was like 100% like success rates, but for the time... Inventing phalloplasty, mm-hmm. it was some, you know, at least there was a glimmer of hope. So, so yeah, I believe Gillies did invent phalloplasty, and Michael Dillon was the first recipient of phalloplasty in the world. Yep. So that's not to say that there weren't um, gender confirmation surgeries that had happened prior, but by the time Gillies had come along, um, he really managed to um, standardize these and figure out like the best practices for them. Before the first ones, they started to take place back in, I think, 1919 in Berlin. There was a guy named Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld who ran the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft mm-hmm. or Sexual Sciences. And um, under, under um, Dr. Hirschfeld's watch, some of the earliest gender confirmation surgeries took place, including... Um, a radical surgery for the the Danish painter uh, Lily Elby. Yeah, they made the movie. Well, in the book. The Is Dan- it the Dutch girl? The Danish or girl. The Danish girl? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I've got to see that then. Is it sad? I'll bet it's sad. I never saw it. Well, I can tell you Lily El- Elby's um, story is sad, but in a very bittersweet way. Yeah. Um, she, she transitioned into a woman and... Um, all she wanted was to be able to have a baby and actually got a uterine transplant. Oh, that's how she died. And a, a vaginoplasty. Yeah. Right? And, but she didn't die for like 
I think 14 or 18 months later. Yeah, it was an infection that eventually led to cardiac arrest. But she wrote like, you know, she knew she was she was dying. Yeah. She wrote toward the end, she said, you know, some people would say that 14 months isn't a very long life to live as the person you, you know, you were born to be. Yeah. But to me it's it was a whole lifetime. So it was like she got she got what she wanted finally. She got to be the woman that she'd always felt she was and lived that way for 14 months. Yeah, I got to check that out. But that was, you know, the idea that she died from the surgery, like they were just practicing basically at this point, but they right. were practicing on live patients. And in their defense um, at the Institute, they, they weren't doing this because they were mad scientists. They were doing this because they were these were people coming to them saying, like, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this myself. Right. Because that was kind of your option. Do it yourself or go totally nuts. Yeah. Um, banging your head against the wall trying to find some other alternative for it. So by the time Gillies came along in the 40s, well, actually World War One, and then onward into the 40s, he really figured out how to do this. And he was the guy who laid the groundwork for everything that came after. Yeah, and he was actually um, another, like, he was not only a, a talented surgeon, but he could provide a medical reason that would yeah. um, be acceptable to the bureaucrats, which was uh, there's a condition called hypospadia. That's when uh, a man's urethra exists further down the penis rather than at the tip of the penis. Mm -hmm. And so a boy might be misgendered at birth, mislabeled, and so this surgery would, uh, I guess, correct that. So he had sort of a, uh, I guess, sort of a, a, I guess, legal standing. No, for sure. To stand on. Remember, like the surgeons, and so the community at large had said, "Okay, if you're born intersex, hypospadia um, uh, qualifies as intersex, right? Um, you deserve to be." taken care of. Like, it's fine. Legally, yeah. you can do it, all that stuff. So if you have a surgeon who's saying this patient has hypospadia, you're in. All right. Should we take a break? Oh, yeah. I think we should. All right. Stuff you should know. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should know. Okay. So... Where we left off was Dr. Gillies has been introduced to Michael Dillon. Mm -hmm. Michael Dillon, uh, hormone therapy has worked. Michael Dillon has been living pretty successfully for the time as a man and said, uh, all right, I'd like to have this surgery. And Dr. Gillies said, that's great, but get in line, pal, because mm -hmm. I got a lot of war masks. <laughs> now, I got a lot of injured men in the war that I have to treat uh, that, in my mind, take priority over you. Uh, and so it took a little while. Um, to actually, you know, go under the knife for Dylan. Uh, yeah, and he. It also like it wasn't like this was just one surgery. You know, this was a oh no series. Sure. The, so Gillies, in his notes later on, said that he he performed thirteen surgeries on Michael Dylan. Dylan, in his autobiography, said that it was seventeen, but it was a lot either way. Yeah, a lot of surgeries over like a three year period during which time Michael Dillon goes to medical school. Yeah, at Trinity in Dublin. Yeah, so he's kind of taking uh, his life into his own hands in a big way mm -hmm. by saying, like, I want to go be a doctor and potentially a surgeon even. Right, and but he's going and doing, like, his studies during the term, and then after the term, he's going to England to visit Gillies at Gillies Hospital, the one we talked about in the War Masks episode. And so you remember, remember how we said, like, this hospital was kind of like a refuge for people mm -hmm. who, like, had trouble existing in the outside world? Yeah. 
Well, Michael Dillon was finally, for the first time in his life, like he felt like accepted there and he could thrive. And he did thrive in this hospital with all these other patients. Uh, It was like a really happy time for him, actually, when he would go spend time there, you know, getting surgeries and recuperating while he was out of school. He felt good. Like he, he called it the country club is where he was going. Yeah, and then weirdly, though, it was also a time where Michael Dillon developed this, um, I guess, sort of a defense mechanism and survival technique uh, relationship-wise where he was sort of – I mean, in the article here, it was labeled misogynistic. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. That's a tough word, but at the very least, it was sort of like, well, who needs women? Women belong in the kitchen, which is all clearly a defense – you know, of self-preservation. Well, I even wrote later on that it was it was to keep women at arm's length, and it was purposeful. They didn't really actually mean it. Well, absolutely, because if even if this surgery, and, you know, we're going to get to that in a second, even if it went off without a hitch, um, when push comes to shove, if he got in a relationship with a woman, while he may have a functioning penis, it's still not one that's like uh, like they would be able to tell and he would have to have some sort of conversation, okay. which he did not want to have. Right. But it's even more nuanced than that, Chuck, because remember how Laura Dillon was befriended by the town vicar as a young kid? Mm-hmm. Well, that vicar is credited by Michael Dillon as really instilling like the set of ethics and values into him. And one of the things that he said is, if I can't give a woman a baby... I have no business leading her on. So it wasn't just self-defense. It was also, in a very strange way, looking out for other women. He didn't want anyone to fall in love with him or expect something from him that he couldn't give. Mm -hmm. And I can't get whether he actually was okay with being denied love like that. Or um, if, you know, that in itself was a defense mechanism, not, not talking about it. But... From what I gather, what he was really interested in, he would much prefer have just been hanging out with the guys. He wasn't after love or a baby or a wife. He was after hanging out with the guys. That's what he wanted. And that's to him is what what Gillies gave him by creating this penis for him was that was it. That was the key. That was the final ticket into the male world. Now he could be anywhere men were, including a, a dressing room or a locker, locker room, and still be accepted as a man. That was it. And so finally, by 1950, after these years of surgery, after more than a decade of testosterone therapy, Michael Dillon was Michael Dillon the man. He had been confirmed in his, in his gender identity. Yeah, so this is where someone named Roberta Cowell comes into Dillon's life. Um, I don't even think we talked about Roberta earlier on, did we? No. We didn't mention her yet? No, because she really does just kind of come in now. So I yeah. think it's okay. So Roberta Cowell— uh, <laughs> we, we should go back and start over. <laughs> Roberta Cowell was born male uh, but began that hormone treatment. And when it was in that transition period that's so difficult when Roberta read Dylan's book, Self, mm-hmm. which, uh, again, not some huge book, but got a copy of it and— said, I would like to meet you and talk to you. Yeah, because she wanted info on like how oh, yeah. how to get, you know, how to get a surgeon to do this. That was might as well have been magic at the time. Well, and he was a doctor at this point too. Mm-hmm. Dylan was. So uh, Roberta thinks like I'm meeting with this doctor, Yeah, which was true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was all a ruse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no doctor. I'm a mechanic. Well, he was all those things. Um, so at the very first meeting, Dylan 
just sort of spills it. And this was something that Dylan didn't talk about openly with people. Mm-hmm. I always kept it very guarded and just basically says, here's my whole life history. Mm-hmm. Here's who I am. And at last I found someone who understands me. And by all accounts, they uh, they sort of felt like they were meant to be together in some way. He felt they were meant to be together. She did not feel that well, way. Well, not in that way. No. But she was very close to him. It's not like she shunned him or anything like that. No, she didn't. I have a feeling that he – well, actually, I know he um, – had a little more of a uh, future in mind for them than she did. Like a romantic future. Right. Um, and he also, at the very least, he, he served as her guide to um, transitioning. She, he knew Gillies. He knew how to do this um, and like just was a really great resource for her as well. Well, and not just emotionally helped with the transition, but literally with a scalpel. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. (laughs) Dylan, as a doctor, actually performed an orchidectomy on Cowell. Right, which is the removal of the testicles. That's right. Which is illegal at the time. And so they found— And was he even like—I know he went to medical school, but I don't even—was he a I'm not sure if he graduated yet. He had definitely performed an appendectomy by that point. Uh, he did that in medical school yeah, for sure. You and I could do that though, to, like sure. tomorrow, probably. <laughs> right. <laughs> we we actually are scheduled for surgery tomorrow. Um, but he did it illegally, and and they found out about this because they, meaning historians, right? Um, in their either Michael's letters or Roberta's letters, there is a document that was found that said, "I, Roberta Cowell, understand that Michael Dillon is a doctor, but is not an experienced surgeon. I also know that there are a lot of risks involved in this, and that it's illegal. But I, I hereby." remove any responsibility should I not survive this orchidectomy that Michael Dillon's about to perform on me. And so with Roberta Cowell's testicles removed, now all of a sudden she is a candidate for um, gender confirmation surgery. From Gillies. From Gillies, who can do it legally now because there's no testicle removal, which again is illegal. And so Gillies, who's been introduced uh, to Roberta by Michael, um, performs a not not a um, is it a penectomy I believe not a penectomy but a vaginoplasty the very first one the very first one in, in Great Britain remember yeah. um, I think um, Lily Elbe uh, was the first vaginoplasty recipient yeah yeah but this is the first one in Great Britain it's not like they were a dime a dozen by this time it was it was groundbreaking oh, surgery yeah. for sure and it was successful too that's right so. Um, he did get his medical degree. Dylan did. Uh, didn't get a job for a little while, but eventually got a job as a ship's doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is in the Merchant Navy. Oh, we didn't say. Um, he asked Roberta to marry him, and Roberta was like, nah. He said, fine. I'm done with relationships. I'm going to join the Merchant Marines. That's right. And was a doctor and very much living as Dr. Michael Dillon on these ships. Bearded, pipe-smoking doctor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can find pictures on uh, Google Images mm-hmm. and all that stuff, mm-hmm. like all kinds of good pictures. Look up look up Michael Dillon and Aunt Toto, seriously. Aunt Toto looks like Aunt Toto. I don't even know what that means. I can't. You will know <laughs> okay. what it means when you see Aunt Toto. I can't stress this enough. So if you go back to the beginning of the show, remember where we talked about the inheritance and the lineage and all that? Mm-hmm. This is where Michael Dillon says, you know what? I want to get my uh, – I want to get back in the family lineage as a man – uh, for my birthright, 
And there are two um, two ways that this is done in Britain, which this is all so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Debrett's Peerage and Burke's Peerage. They're the two books that track the the thoroughbreds That's of, right. of British aristocracy. You should have used air quotes. Um, so Dylan uh, makes this change in one of them in Debrett's. Doesn't make the change in Burke's. Because Debrett's assured him that if the change was made in De, in Debrett's, Burke's would follow suit automatically. I was just about to say that. So that didn't happen. And uh, this is when things go really uh, – This, I mean, you think what a journey this man has been on to this point. Mm-hmm. This sends him to like uh, down the philosophical spiral where – or maybe up the philosophical spiral. Mm-hmm. Can you spiral up? Sure. <laughs> it's like a corkscrew. All right. An inverted corkscrew. So uh, starts getting into Buddhism, uh, specifically a book called The Third Eye. Which is, I think, like about Tibetan Buddhism, but how they can like fly around and do stuff. Yeah. I mean, Supernatural that, that stuff. That book is definitely one that's been taken uh, issue with over the years. Sure. So uh, he goes back to Britain. He's very much in this um, mindset of Buddhism and philosophical uh, introspection. Uh-huh. Uh, this is when it's he's basically exposed in the press as this scandalous uh, person who had a sex change and is trying to like get the family fortune uh, when he's not even entitled, mm-hmm. or they probably use the she pronouns, I imagine right, back yeah. then. Yeah, and uh, he basically finally comes out, does an interview, fully outing himself in the press, even though he did say he suffered from hypospadia, which. In an order to gain sympathy, which was not true. No, apparently it wasn't true. Yeah, that's what we were saying at the beginning. Like the the historical record has been muddied by by stuff like that, like during that interview. But it doesn't seem to be true. But he's exposed. He's he's basically like I, I can't go anywhere in England. I can't go to America. Mm-hmm. All the press is going to follow me wherever I go, except probably to India. I want to go meet some of these Tibetan monks. Yeah. So he headed off to India. Um, after one of the voyages in the merchant navy and um, started studying Buddhism. He found, he sought out a guy, another Briton, who had been um, uh, transformed under uh, Theravada Buddhism, the Theravada tradition, Mm -hmm. uh, who had become known as, let me see if I can get this right, Chuck, right out of the gate, Um, Sangharakshita. Yeah. Pretty good, right? I think so. So Sangharakshita was a uh, British guy. Um, I can't remember what his, his uh, born name was, but he um, had become like a, a pretty well-respected, renowned Theravada Buddhist teacher mm-hmm. in India. And so Michael Dillon sought him out and um, started studying under him. Well, and as but gave him the, his whole story and said, this is who I am, right. so, by the way. So at this point, like not only has he become a man, now he's becoming a Buddhist. And so to kind of undergo this further transition from Michael Dillon to this new Buddhist practitioner, he takes a name, Sramanera Javaka. Javaka was Buddha's doctor. Um, He throws his pipe off the mountain. He shaves his beard, shaves his head, Mm -hmm. and starts learning Buddhism. And um, Sangharakshita takes him on and says, I will, I will let you be a novice. You can study under me. And so Michael had, um, or I should say uh, Sramanera at this point, had like this sudden 
idea that that he was going to become a Buddhist monk. That mm-hmm. this was this was in the cards for him in the future, and he dared he dared to dream. Yeah, this this was to me maybe the saddest thing of all this. Mm-hmm. Like at toward the end of this man's journey, finally says, you know what is going to bring me peace is to become a Buddhist monk, and they're accepting me in my story, mm-hmm. and that's when they said, actually, you can't really become a monk. Yeah. Sorry about that, but yeah. you uh, it files it's it falls under one of these bans, and you can't be ordained as a monk because only men can be monks. And it was just like I can't imagine how crushing that was. There was also a prohibition against uh, the third sex becoming monks. Yeah, and apparently nobody knew exactly what third sex meant, but everybody was like. It's probably you. You're, there's probably referring to you. So if you're if you're born a woman, you can't be uh, a uh, monk. If you're third sex, you can't be a monk either. So uh, Michael had these things going against him, but he still kept at it. He still kept trying. He left the Theravada tradition, and he found acceptance with Tibetan monks. Right. And it was the Tibetan monks that he he felt most at home with. He was accepted on as a novice, and he was a novice who at age like forty. Five, I think, mm-hmm. um, was at the same level as 10-year-old boys living in this Buddhist monastery up yeah. in the Himalayas, but was happier than he's ever been in his life just for this period of three months. And so he's, he's found where he thinks he belongs, but he has to leave because his visa runs out. So he goes back to India to wait the prescribed amount of time and um, fully believes that he's going to be able to go back to become a confirmed monk. He would be ordained and, and um, start to become a monk under the Tibetan tradition, which probably would have happened had Sangharakshita not intervened again. Yeah, and at this point, he had fully was living this monastic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. He wrote home and said, give away all my possessions. And Aunt Toto was like, you know that um, there's more money coming your way, like 20,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want it. Just give it away. Give it away. And... I guess Aunt Toto did so. She said, thanks, thanks for the 20,000 pounds. <laughs> so like I say, he thinks he's going to be ordained because the Tibetan monks had, had said, we're going to ordain you um, when you come back. But Sangharakshita, the original guy from the Theravada tradition, found out about this yeah. and sent a letter in triplicate to Michael, to the Tibetan monks, and to, like the, to the Buddhist central office, I guess. <laughs> And basically said, here's, here's everything that Michael Dillon told me about himself. He was born a woman. He, had, he underwent surgery. Um, th- he is in no way a, a, a candidate for the monastery, for yeah. monkhood. Um, and just shot down his, his chances. And I read a Tricycle magazine article. It's like the Buddhist magazine uh-huh. um, where they interviewed uh, Sheeta years later mm-hmm. this is like in 2007 and he said I still stand by it yeah he's like I I, uh, I don't think he had any business in my mind being a, a Buddhist monk which is pretty rough man even all these years later he has zero regrets over it it's sad yeah um, so the sad sad ending for Michael Dillon is he died at a very young age he was uh, had no money because he gave it all away uh, was traveling and malnutrition sets in and they're not really sure uh, what sickness originated, uh, sort of the, the downward slide. Mm-hmm. But he ended up in a hospital in India and died at the age of 47 in 1962. And had written an autobiography called Out of the Ordinary, which did not get published until two years ago. 
Yeah, it, he sent it off to his um, publisher, who he'd written a couple other books for, um, like just right before he died. And his brother found out about it and wanted to get his hands on the manuscript so he could burn it. And his publisher hired lawyers to keep the family off of the manuscript and, and was successful. Amazing. And finally, in 2017, it was published. And now the world knows about Michael Dillon and his contribution. There's got to be a movie in the works. It's coming. Yeah. It is coming. For sure. So that's Michael Dillon, Chuck. Good pick. Thanks. I'm glad we know more about this guy because he deserves to be known about. Um, and if you want to know more about Michael Dillon, well, go check him out. He has an autobiography out there, and I'm sure he would be very happy from Nirvana, uh, smiling down on you for reading it. That's right. Okay, I said that, so it's time for Listener Mail, Chuck. I'm going to call this a rowboater. Uh, hey, guys, my name is Jacob, writing from a rowboat on the Pacific Ocean. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been alone at sea for 270 days. Man on an attempted record-setting journey. My oars keep talking to me. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I just watched that. Uh, there's a documentary about obituary writers um, called Obit. Mm. And in it, they kind of um, talk about some of their favorite obituaries over the years. And one of them was about the initial guy who rode the Atlantic and the Pacific um, Ocean, which I had never heard of. I was like, man, we got to do one on this guy. Sure. And then we get this email. From Jacob, all these years later, who's doing it again. Okay. Crazy. Did that set in, everyone? Rowing a boat across the ocean? That's big. (laughs) No sails. No. Rowing. Rowing. All right. I hadn't listened to your podcast prior to departing, but luckily, I guess he was just like, geez, who has a thousand episodes of something? (laughs) (laughs) We're the only ones. Yeah, I hope it's good. Uh, I hadn't listened to your podcast prior to departing, but luckily chose your show um, in an audio entertainment download frenzy before leaving. Uh, I've now been through many episodes They'll sometimes drift away, staring at oncoming waves and have to rewind, which is more difficult than it should be since saltwater has destroyed most of my electronics. Mm. I'm about 75% of the way there, uh, hoping to reach Australia from Washington State. Wow. Oh, man. I just want to say thanks for all you guys do. Appreciate your show, and I value you. The next 25% for me are far from certain, uh, but you'll be with me all the way till the end, wherever that may be. And that is from Jacob from somewhere over the Melanesian Basin. Okay, Jacob, we need weekly dispatches from you. Please. Just at the very least to say, hey, still alive, still rowing toward Australia. Well, he won't hear that. I don't think he's able to download stuff from the Melanesian Basin. That's true. (laughs) So maybe he'll hear this at the end of his journey. There's satellite internet out there, so maybe. Well, Jacob, if you hear this and you're... Still on your journey. It doesn't even matter. Doesn't Whenever matter. you hear this, email us back, okay? Yeah, if it's in 20 years. Everybody cross your fingers and your toes for Jacob. That's right. Okay. Uh, if you want to be like Jacob and get in touch with us from a rowboat somewhere in some ocean, you can do that. You can go to our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com, and look up our social links, and you can send us a good old-fashioned email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.